Welcome to Starkey Soundbites. I'm your host, Dave Fabry, uh, Starkey's Chief Innovation Officer. Our guest is someone I've been excited to chat with for this podcast for some time, not just because he's a friend of mine, but because he spent time researching hearing loss in Man's Best Friend. Dr. Pete Shifley has his PhD in animal science and bioacoustics, speech and hearing science, and he's a professor at the University of Cincinnati. Uh, he's the executive director of Fetch Lab, which is an internationally renowned animal hearing and bioacoustics laboratory. Dr. Pete Shifley, welcome to the podcast. Nice to be here. I'm, I'm happy that you were invited me. Well, of course, but uh, I, I wish we were sitting face to face, but we'll have to handle this in, in the manner that we're doing so this way, where you're in Cincinnati and I'm here in Minnesota. Um, but let's start with the, uh, from the beginning, really. Um, briefly, what is animal audiology? Animal audiology is actually something that I dreamed up when I began working at the University of Cincinnati as a professor. Of course, we are all required to do research and everybody has their own individual uh, desires. Uh, and my primary department is in audiology at the University of Cincinnati, uh, but also then I work with um, the medical school in neurology and, uh, and such. And so having had an animal background, not only uh, with my degree in animal sciences, but also with the Navy, I um, decided that I would really like to expand audiology into the veterinary community. And my thought was pretty simple. It was, if an audiologist can work side by side with an ENT, then why can they not work side by side with a veterinarian. And since audiologists now with our AUDs have the expert knowledge of audiology, it should be able to be applied to an array of animals. The canine area came first because in the United States today, there are 80 breeds of dogs that suffer congenital de deafness. And uh, that started out pretty much with Dalmatians. I think when uh, 101 Dalmatians came out, they were very popular. And unfortunately, over time with the breeding, uh, congenital deafness is showing up as one of the primary uh, impacts to that particular breed. So that at this day and time, one out of every five Dalmatians will be born congenitally deaf. And so now uh, the breeders, of all the different breeds uh, are, are gathering together with the veterinary community. Uh, and I think Dr. George Strain at Louisiana State University is kind of the starter of all this to uh, try to do audiological testing for congenital deafness, what, what audiologists would call an ABR or we call a bear test um, to find out if puppies are deaf so that uh, a, a non-deaf purebred puppy could be registered with the American Kennel Club. And so that's kind of what started the Fetch Lab. As so are you, of, oh, sorry, uh, so are you saying that AKC, the American Kennel Club, if one of those puppies, unfortunately, like a Dalmatian, happens to have profound hearing loss, they won't register them with AKC as a purebred? Yes, they're not considered hmm. to be, they're considered to be altered, which is a kind of a bad word to use, yeah. but, uh, but yeah, the, the, the dog needs to be um, 
wholesome and complete in its health. And so uh, that's kind of the way things are looked at. So the Orthopedic Foundation for Animals turns out to be the keepers of all of the congenital testing that's done on any puppy uh, from 35 weeks old to about 12 weeks old. And so that is where the archives are for all the testing. So when we test puppies, uh, the owner breeder is responsible to, if they want the puppies to be registered, they're responsible to send the, the bear test results to OFA, which archives them, uh, and, and then they go on from there. As a result of that, um, the Army Research Office approached me, uh, being some uh, ex-military operations guy, um, and said, we're having some issues with our dogs. Uh, one of the issues that came up right away was that uh, handlers were finding out that if they were on a long helicopter ride uh, to a landing zone, uh, everybody in the helicopter is, is wearing hearing protection, uh, except the dog. Except the dog, yeah. So, and, and handlers have tried over the years various different things. Most of the dogs we use are Belgian Malinois. And so it's a shepherd-like dog. They'll try bringing the ear flap down or putting cotton in the dog's ears or whatever like that. But the dogs seem to be coming out of the chopper um, a little bit confused and not taking verbal commands. And so um, I wound up showing by testing a number of dogs in the helicopter that, uh, that um, the dog was not selectively ignoring the handler. The dog could not hear the handler because it had a significant threshold shift after a 30 minute or longer ride in the helicopter with no hearing protection. As a result of that, and because of my past military, I kind of got drawn back into it again. Hmm. And so um, we became responsible for um, multi-purpose canines and, and doing hearing protection and developing hearing protection and actually working with and training the veterinarians of the army to um, conduct bear tests. So I well, said, well, well, that background you know, is gonna... just, it's fascinating to think about uh, that and, and how this pathway led you to that. You talked briefly about your experience in the military, your animal science background, which we share. I started as an animal science undergrad. Really? Um, yep. Back in college, I, I was first in my family to go to college. And when I off, came off uh, to the University of Minnesota as a freshman, I was an animal science major and only found my way through audiology, to audiology rather, through a lab uh, that W. Dixon Ward and David Nelson shared where we were working on damage risk criteria for noise exposure. And as you know, uh, a lot of what we know about hearing really dates back to George von Beckish's work uh, where he, he won the Nobel Prize in hearing uh, and a lot of that work was based on animal models. And uh, yes. a lot of the work that Dix Ward and many others around the world have done uh, and I got to participate in is uh, based on chinchillas or guinea pigs. And so, so much of what we know about human hearing is based on uh, work that was based uh, on animal research. And, and, uh, and so I, it's one of the reasons I just love uh, the path that you've taken because it is really based on uh, not people just think, oh, you know, that, that's a cute hobby. 
but but you think about the 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 depth of this uh, research and the area that you focused on to not only help some of these service animals and we'll talk more about that more in a moment but but really uh, uh, that it has helped humanity in terms of our knowledge about noise exposure in humans and about signal processing and things that are found in modern uh, hearing aids has been based in many ways on animal research from the past. So what I'd love for you to do is spend a minute and talk about your hearing journey. And, and, and you highlighted a few things, but uh, when did you first get interested in audiology? A chicken and egg thing. I guess you got interested <laughs> in audiology first, then we're in the military working on canines, but before canines, other animals. And then uh, in establishing the fetch lab, kind of found your way back through this. But start talk a little bit about what your initial interest was in hearing. Well, initially, um, I was uh, attending the University of Connecticut to get my PhD. I was in the animal sciences department, so we're brothers in arms there. Uh, and uh, it turns out that uh, I, like all PhD candidates, I needed to come up with a thesis and, and something I was interested in. And I, was, I had always been interested in um, canine hearing. So uh, I found myself one day over in the uh, communication sciences and disorders department, roaming through the hallway. And I ran into this fellow, Frank Music, And uh, I began to talk to him and said, you know, I'm, in, I'm kind of interested in, uh, in, uh, in animal hearing and audiology. And so uh, he, he countered back with, uh, well, what do you what do you want to do? You know, I'm not an animal scientist, but um, he said, you know, what what is your interest? And at that time, my interest was, and this is what I did my PhD dissertation on, was the Lombard response in beluga whales. Crazy. And yeah, um, and and I did that because can you talk, I happened to for for those who might be uninitiated. Can you give a high level explanation? Everyone knows the beluga whale. But can you give a high-level explanation of what the Lombard effect is? Sure. So the Lombard effect, sometimes known to people as the cocktail party effect, uh, is a reflex that we have whereupon if you are uh, speaking and the noise floor that you are environment that you're in raises up, your voice will automatically raise up to meet that uh, noise floor for intelligibility purposes. And this happens to be a reflex that we have. And it turns out that many, only a few animals had been known at that time to have a Lombard reflex. Uh, some uh, tamarins and other types of monkeys and whatever. But because of the work that I was doing in the Navy, I was very much into working with marine mammals at the time. And the bulk of the work that I was doing was up in the St. Lawrence River estuary where all of the shipping comes into the St. Lawrence River to head up to the Great Lakes. And so I was working uh, with the Canadian government and, and the whale center up there called the, the Group for uh, Education of Marine Mammals. Uh, and so um, I told, told this to Frank and I said, well, I don't know anything about, I don't even know what a Lombard response is. And so, he said, well, you, you need to find out. We're gonna, and so we started to work together and fashioned out my, my dissertation thesis that 
that ultimately showed that yes, beluga whales in the wild do have a Lombard response. Um, and so uh, that went back to the military <laughs> and the military responded by coming back and saying, well, you need to, uh, you need to come do some stuff for us. Uh, so it turns out that I, um, I actually uh, retired with 22 years in the military in uh, 1992. Thank you for your service. Yeah. Oh, you're welcome. Your service. And uh, and it, and then I got a visit in 2014 from a fellow from the Naval Investigative Service who said we are uh, reinstating your clearance and we need you to come back and do some work for us. So welcome back. So. Um, uh, that's when I started to actually do work with uh, with canines, because the Army Research Office approached me, and so it has gone on since then uh, to uh, uh, to not only the Army but working dogs, uh, Fetch Lab. I'm also responsible for testing uh, Cincinnati SWAT dogs, uh, dogs that are exposed to either gunfire or explosives or whatever uh, high noise regimes. But we also do a lot of work with, with exotic animals at, at zoos. Um, my wife's degree is in exotic animal training and zoo management. And so uh, we use those together to, um, to do things such as uh, we do a lot of sound work uh, to protect the animals at thing, places like the Georgia Aquarium, the Mystic Aquarium, the Newport Aquarium. Uh, and so that's how, things, that's how things started and went on. Uh, you know, Frank got me into the whole thing, and that made me then uh, make my PhD go partially animal science and partially um, speech and hearing sciences. So here I am with you know with all of this in the in the in the background. It's amazing. I mean, Frank's influence um, has been so profound on this field, and I didn't realize. Um, that he had also served as a mentor to you, and uh, and but it it doesn't surprise me given his uh, <laughs> knowledge base and and his uh, array and breadth of interest. So when when you talk about, uh, I think it's fascinating when you talked about how in the military when they're bringing some of the the dogs along with the teams uh, in the helicopter that everyone was wearing hearing protection except the dogs, um, and then um, what other approaches so so you identified that the dogs were suffering from at least a temporary uh, shift in their hearing from the the ride in this uh, noisy helicopter um what did and we know from advising people if they're in noisy environments that just stuffing toilet paper in their ears doesn't work so what did you do to try to protect those working dogs from acquiring a temporary or permanent threshold shift so that when they hit the ground, they could hit the ground uh, running and, and ready to start doing what they're trained to do? Well, the Army uh, Research Office took that in hand and uh, they put out a small business innovation research um, um, grant thing uh, out for proposals. And, uh, and a company by the name of Zeteo Tech and Vodum uh, both won that, uh, but, the, but the, the SBIR went each to both of those companies with the stipulation so I, that I was a consultant on it mm. because of the audiological aspects. Uh, from that, we actually developed a hearing protection device, a tactical hearing protection device for 
those dogs for the special operations dogs. Um, and, uh, and, and now they, now anybody can get that. If they go on to rec specs, they can, they can get one. Um, but they were originally designed for military dogs that are undergoing transportation, either in, in by vehicle, fixed wing or rotary wing, wing aircraft. Um, and so that went a long way towards now uh, getting rid of the problem that the handlers had where dogs would come off the chopper and be confused, yeah. not taking verbal commands, that kind of thing like that. So we, you know, we were able to do a good thing with the development of, of this canine hearing protection device. Um, it has now spilled over into other things. Mm -hmm. uh, lately, uh, one of the things that, I, that they have me working on is, is another thing that, that I kind of brought up to them when it comes down to uh, threshold shifts. Mm -hmm. And that is that in many bases, these dogs are kenneled and there are quite a few dogs in the kennel. Kennels uh, for over the years and to this present day are built to be clean, not to be acoustically correct. Right. And so constantly what you're looking at are dogs that are in a concrete kennel with a concrete floor and concrete walls and so on and so forth. Hard surfaces that are reflective yep. in many cases. Yep. And so many times, you know, I mean, the, the, the noise levels go up and down during the day, but typically during the, during the day proper, and especially at feeding time, um, those noise levels in those kennels can be as high as 110 dBA. Yep. And so, you know, which so is a next... damaging level for humans and for Absolutely. animals Absolutely. Um, uh, when, when they're in a sustained exposure. And as you say, when the dogs know they're going to be getting fed, they're going to start barking. So those oh, levels, sure. I'm surprised they're not even louder. Yep. Uh, I mean, and it, it, I, when, when I go and do a kennel noise mitigation, which is now what they have me working on, because now everybody's concerned, you know, that I brought up the fact that if you are starting off your day as a handler, taking your dog out of a kennel that he's been in for 24 hours and the noise levels have been very high, then that dog is already starting at a deficit with a threshold shift. Now, if you take him out and start putting him on, on the gun range or whatever, you are adding to that. Um, and, and again, this is for, for, for those of us in audiology, this is pretty common stuff, you, you get this, but this is not the kind of thing that, that the average person and certainly not the military um, even think about. No. Uh, so, so that now, you know, now the, now the latest, like I say, the latest thing that I have me working on is mitigating kennel noise and kind of rewriting the design for military kennels that will allow the dogs to be more calm because they're, they're not subjected to the noise. They're not having a threshold shift at the beginning of the day and so on and so forth. And, and you would know this very well. Anybody that does audiology knows this very well. I think in large part of this, uh, when it comes down even to humans, you know, audiology and worrying about your hearing doesn't appear at the top of the pile. It certainly no. doesn't appear, you know, at the level of, uh, of heart disease and things like that. It's taken for granted and until it's lost. It is. And, and you know, I, and I see this a lot, even with the, the people that come with their puppies or dog or people that come with their dogs that are older and say, I don't think my dog is hearing, you know, I come home and I walk over him and he doesn't wake up. And um, is that, you know, as we know, but, but people don't think about um, hearing loss is not like a broken bone. It's not like a cut, nothing hurts. It's nothing mechanical. And so we don't think about it. And so typically what I'll get is a person that comes in 
on Fridays is when we hold our, our, uh, our lab or our clinic for puppies and people that have dogs that they think can't hear, um, is that this has been happening over a long period of time, just like it does with a human, but there's no pain involved in it. So people right. don't even know that it's happening. And typically I'll get a person that will come in and say, I have this dog and I think the dog can't hear, you know, for one reason or another, it's not reacting. There's no behavioral reaction or whatever. And, uh, and they'll say, you know, it suddenly lost its hearing. And, you know, and I say, no, probably it didn't suddenly lose its hearing. This has probably been going on for some time and it has been losing its hearing, but you have not noticed the symptoms. And consequently, you're now at the point where, yes, your dog, in fact, if we run a bear test, find out that the dog, uh, you know, has lost its hearing. So, so it does sound like a lot of the discussions that I have with my human patients, uh, that it is just insidious coming on over many years. And I do want to explore that. Just uh, sorry to interrupt you, but no, go ahead. Um, when you talk about in the military application where the work that you've done has identified importantly uh, that the dog, if they're not protecting their hearing the same way the human, their human counterpart is when they're on an airplane or in a Humvee, um, that they're not ready to go to work as soon as they get to where they're going. So you've been able to help mitigate that. Have you also helped increase or make their service like their service years, their working years longer as a result of this by preventing them from being exposed unnecessarily to loud sounds in transport? Have you lengthened their careers, if you will, by uh, the unwanted high noise levels? Absolutely. Um, and that's one of the things that I was able to portray um, to the Army Research Office and some of the higher level people uh, in the military is that you're extending the working life of this dog uh, so that you're not having to constantly replace dogs into the mm -hmm. military. Um, and so as a result of that, I mean, that that is not only good from the point of view of the health of the dog, yeah. Uh, but the and but if you're going to be you know a suit a, a higher <laughs> higher level person, you're you're also saving money because you're not putting money into having to constantly replace the dogs in, in, that you're using. But I think even more important than that is uh, that we realize now that that military canines, uh, dogs that are working with you know police like SWAT teams and things like that they are really protecting the people. A military working dog that goes out with a platoon yeah. is really protecting every man and woman in that platoon. For sure. So if that dog is not hearing, if the dog has a deficit, not only is the dog at a disadvantage, but it's putting every member of that platoon at a disadvantage if it goes into a firefight or whatever happens to, to happen or a policeman. So by having these dogs have good hearing, you are not only protecting the dog, but you're protecting the people who rely on that dog for doing its job. No question. So, yes. No question. And let's segue into civilian life then. I can imagine for service dogs, um, uh, for those with uh, poor vision, you know, uh, uh, seeing eye dogs as they were historically called or, or hearing dogs, um, being able to, again, extend the service life 
of those dogs. I, I mean, I can only imagine, I, I have some rough idea how much it costs to train those dogs for uh, as service dogs and to be able to uh, lengthen their years of service uh, by preventing them from unnecessary exposure, as well as hunting dogs. I know they're as well very expensive to train and to yes. try to prevent their hearing from uh, unnecessary exposure. Do you do work in the civilian areas as well with, with these types of animals? Yes. Um, and in fact, here in, in Cincinnati, um, <clears throat> once a year, just before Christmas, uh, we have a veterinarian who has for years uh, hosted what we call Canine Corps. And that is a day that is set aside where a whole group of veterinarians, whether they're people that are doing dental or osteology or whatever, including Fetch Lab, hmm. get together. And as a community service, we test all of the Cincinnati police dogs, the SWAT dogs, uh, the uh, search and rescue dogs, cadaver dogs. They, uh, and they all get all their testing, including audiology, and they get it done for free so that we know that these dogs go back out that year and we have a baseline for them. We know that their hearing is okay. We know their health is okay. Uh, so yes, as, as an aside to that though, um, I would say that out of every 100 dogs that I test on a Friday in the lab, uh, roughly a third of those dogs are not puppies, but they are dogs that are being brought in by their owner, either because the dog is 12 or 13 or 14 years yep. old and has presbycusis or whatever the case may be. Aging of uh, the so, ear. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yep. so, and, and so, uh, yes, we are, we are serving everybody. Everybody. Yeah, that's where I was going next because, you know, I've had some dogs that have lived to be uh, 15, 16 years as their diets improve and, uh, and we exercise them more. Uh, I always say that the best thing about the dog is they're, they're absolutely human's best friend, but the hardest part is, is that they just don't live long enough, and we want yeah. them to have the best quality of life throughout their entire life. So sure. um, I, I do want to segue into that as well to talk a little bit about have you attempted uh, and conducted not only assessments, but fitting uh, uh, with uh, canines uh, with hearing aids? Yes. And, and, and I'm, uh, before I answer that, I want to say one more thing that I think is important. Um, in this day and age, uh, not every veterinarian uh, knows how to do a bear test, to test yeah. dog hearing. Uh, moreover, many of them don't have the equipment to be able to, to do electrophysiological testing. Uh, and so... Um, Veterinary neurologists and veterinary general veterinarians uh, certainly could run a test. What, what, where I think Fetch Lab comes in is that my belief is that if you're a veterinarian, you practice veterinary medicine, and you should, just like an MD, you practice, you know, medicine, and and you should. That's your expertise. But when it comes to expertise in audiology, we have doctors of audiology. And my belief is that we should let them do their job. If they are properly trained to work with a veterinarian, then they should do that because they understand the analysis. They understand the whys and wherefores, which, you know, when I was in, when I went to medical school, the only give, and even here at Cincinnati, 
we only give one lecture on audiology. And basically, you know, it, it's you know, using a tuning fork on a person to do a, you know, a, a, a basic test that you can do in an office. And then basically it's go talk to your audiologist or your speech pathologist. And so there's no time to add the, the amount of audiology that needs to be done into a medical or veterinary curriculum. There just isn't the time for it. But we don't need to do that because we have audiologists that are, that are doctors of audiology. And so my belief is this, is this is what needs to be done. Now, having said that, in answer to the, to the next topic that we're talking about, uh, and when I started doing testing here and started Fetch Lab, it turns out that, uh, that I owned a dog with my wife and, our, and this dog uh, was doing a lot of television work. So he was on Animal, Animal Planet and mm. things like that. Uh, but as the dog got into his 12th or 13th year, he was losing his hearing, we noticed, and he was not able, he was very confounded by off-camera verbal cues and things like that. So this was the first dog that I got uh, with, uh, with my colleague, John Clark, at the university here and said, why don't we try to put a hearing aid on this dog? And so we did. Uh, we, we got some uh, BTE, some behind-the-ear hearing aids, and we fashioned out a special cape for this dog to wear where the hearing aids were on the cape, Velcroed on, and the tubes went. And, and because this dog was highly trained, it was easy to, for my wife, who is the trainer and behaviorist, to work with him to accept the hearing aid. Mm -hmm. Now, when I talk to people about hearing aids, and I get people every month that are asking me, bet. could you put hearing aids on my dogs, uh, is that... Can we do it? Yes, we can. Uh, the problem is, is that, uh, well, there's a lot of problems. One of them is the cost, which we could talk about in a little while. But the other one is, is that if you're going to put a hearing aid on your dog, it requires a commitment to training that dog because dog does not want to have something in his ear. Nope. So it takes commitment to train. And even if you train the dog to accept it, there is no guarantee that the dog will ever acknowledge the fact that that hearing aid is doing anything different for him than any other time in his life other than having something in his ear. Mm -hmm. It turns out with this first dog that after you know a month of training, uh, we used to get home and my two kids and my wife and I would get one of those horns that you on a, on a bicycle that you mm -hmm. can, and we'd sit in four corners, you know, of the room and, and then beep and see if he would acknowledge and go to the beep. Well, one night, one of my kids, you know, beeped the horn and you could see him stop and sort of recognize that, whoa, something just happened. And he, localized it and went to where that sound hmm. came from. So that was our test to say, well, yeah, he, he gets it. Uh, the hearing aid works. And in the rest of his lifetime, which amounted to another year and a half or two years, um, he wore his cape with his hearing aids every day. Hmm. Uh, and, and so he was the first of nine dogs that to, to date I have put hearing aids on.
And so all of them, are they all wearing ones that go behind the ear? Because the additional complication that I can think of immediately is that, uh, you know, they can move their ears and, and some yes. breeds more than others. And then some that have ears that flop down over their external auditory canal. Um, have you tried custom devices? Uh, now, I know there's channel, challenges with that, too, because their canals are very tortuous, very curvy. Um, but but have you always done the behind the ear style or have you tried other styles as well? No, we have tried other styles um, and you're right because the dog the dog's ear canal has a vertical section and a horizontal section. Mm -hmm. um, we use the BTEs, the behind the ears at first. The, one of the last dogs that I <clears throat> put a hearing aid on was a dog that belonged to a veterinarian in Austin, Texas. And the dog was also a search and rescue dog. And so we used a wireless hearing aid so that the mm. power pack was on the collar and then the hearing aid didn't need to have, you know, that, that uh, tube. Uh, and as far as I know to this date, unless the dog has passed by now, um, that dog, again, got it and, and wears the uh, wireless hearing aids. Now, we haven't done a whole lot more with it only because um, of, of time and funding. But I, I am continuously asked to please, please, please develop a canine hearing aid. However, you, you're, you've made hearing aid technology advance so far, but there's a lot of things that in a hearing aid that we put on humans for them, for their daily lives that are irrelevant to the dog. The dog yeah. doesn't need you know, you know, heart rate and things like that, you know, and so what yet. people are maybe not yet, maybe not yet, you know, we might, we might yeah. think of a way that that might add value too. It, it could add veterinary value. Yes. Um, but what I'm being constantly asked right now is, is can we start out by getting a hearing aid, which is specifically made for canines that only has the technologies in it that a dog is going to need and not and and it might not be not now talk not now talking about police or or uh, military because honestly if a dog is losing its hearing to the point that it needs a hearing aid the military and the police are not going to use that no, and neither will them. Yeah, neither will guide them. dogs yeah. for the blind because you yeah. know you, it's it's a risk yeah. but pet owners that's what it, dave i ha i can't even begin to tell you in the last year I've had people from Paris, France, from Russia, uh, from Spain, from Italy, all asking me, get a hold of me via the internet and say, can you put a hearing aid on my dog? Mm -hmm. And so we need to come up with something that is going to be useful for the dogs. And as you say, you know, technology will be what it will. Who knows what's going to happen down the line? But we don't even have a basic hearing aid that an animal could use right now to extend its life. Uh, and, and so the, the question becomes, what, well, what exactly does a dog need to hear? Right. That's what and, I'd like and, to talk briefly about. Yeah. And the, the answer is for the, for the typical uh, community of, of, of pet owners, all they want is to say, can my dog hear me call? Mm -hmm. When the dog's outside and I call him back, can he hear the, the, you know, the dinner dish? Can he hear household noises that the dog needs to hear to survive. And I tell these people two things. Typically, 
an email to me to put a hearing aid on a dog usually starts out with something that says, my dog is losing its hearing and uh, maybe it also has cataracts or whatever like that. And, um, and so I'd like to get a hearing aid for my dog um, to enhance its quality of life. And so my response to that is two things. I tell them, first of all, the mere fact that you are contacting me to take the time and money to put a hearing aid on your dog tells me that your dog has a good quality of life. You are a good pet owner, <laughs> yeah. okay? Now, and, and secondly, you have to understand that a dog's primary sense is not hearing. The dog's primary sense is olfaction, smell. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, why haven't people thought about hearing aids in the past? Well, because if the dog has its sense of smell, it's probably gonna do just fine around your house. Mm -hmm. You start to get out into hunting and things like that and, and you know, and, and working dogs and stuff. And now things change a little bit. So the question is, can we develop a reasonably uh, useful and not quite as expensive hearing aid specifically for canines. Uh, and so it turns out that th this is a big thing. It's a big need. People, people want this for their dogs. Um, and in the sense of some of the working dogs like, like search and rescue and stuff, this is a kind of thing that is absolutely needed. Uh, and so that's why we have taken to, to uh, be where we are and trying to say, can we pursue this? Can we actually do this? Yeah, I think, you know, even thinking about the signal processing differences for canines than for humans in terms of the frequency response, the range of hearing that dogs have, at least when they start out, is, is a little different than for humans. But then, as you said, for what the need is for most uh, humans uh, is to have dogs hear within that audible range for us and to hear the types of sounds in the environment that they can pick up really. I mean, their ears are like, like for humans, their ears are sensors, the same as their olfaction is and their vision is. And um, putting that all together can improve the quality of life. And so we'll stay tuned for that on the rehabilitative side. Um, I want to go back to a comment earlier that you were making about, you know, the, the working, uh, maybe another career opportunity for audiologists who are interested in animal health and animal audiology is um, really to look at the electrophysiological measures. You mentioned the auditory brainstem response. And for those who aren't familiar with that, it's putting electrodes on and measuring brain signals in response to sounds. Um, I, I presume autoacoustic emissions can be used on, on dogs as an objective measure, the same as they can for humans. Every baby um, is tested with a, a first-level screener, is autoacoustic emissions, just with a, a sound that is putting a, a sound into the ear and then measuring a, an echo back from the ear. Um, do you also provide additional training for those audiologists who are interested in moving into this area in, a, in certification, if you will, so that then in their area, if they wanted to work uh, with veterinarians or with populations of, of uh, in the civilian population for people who want to extend uh, their, their dog's quality of life and, and healthy hearing, do you offer that through Fetch Lab? Yes, I, I am very grateful to the University of Cincinnati in that um, I, has, as part of Fetch Lab, 
have uh, created a graduate certificate in animal audiology, uh, which can only be gotten if you are a practicing licensed audiologist or an AUD student. Uh, and in, 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 to get that certification, there, is, there are practicum hours, just like there are in, in the clinic for, uh, for, for uh, humans. Um, they also uh, have to attend a number of classes. And these classes, since the audiologists already know the audiology, yeah. the classes that they have to get, go through to get the, the certification are more oriented towards okay, you're not dealing with a human, you're dealing with an animal now. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there, is, uh, there are some things that are veterinary that go into courses, such as how do you restrain a dog uh, uh, if you're gonna do a test and, uh, and covering a, a wide variety of animals and biology to get them to understand the biological animal aspect as opposed to a human. And I have to say that one of the things that has come to me, uh, and I've heard my students say this over and over again, and it is something that I thought of when I opened Fetch Lab, is, you know, when I see our, 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 our people in clinic, the students go into clinic and they're learning, they have a preceptor or whatever like that, and they're gonna run an ABR. And so running an ABR with a human, there's so much data on humans, you sort of yeah. know what, to, what you yeah. want to expect. Yeah. You go from A to Z and you, you know what you should be getting. And then, you, you know, although pick, peak picking is always kind of a little bit tenuous. But, um, but now all of a sudden I get my AUD students and they become in fetch lab. And now they have a dog on the table. Well, now they run an ABR or bear test and all bets are off. They don't know what they don't know what what to look for. They don't know what yeah. what the waveforms are supposed to look yeah. like. They don't know when they're supposed to happen. So so they find out very quickly that if I have to go and do an ABR on an animal, first of all, I have to be really expertly know my equipment. What is my equipment lineup? What is it going to do if I do something wrong? What can I expect? Uh, and then working through many, many puppy screenings and everything, starting to learn, oh, this is what it looks like, because there are no universally accepted norms right. in the veterinary community for, mm -hmm. for this. So, um, so it, it's, it's an eye opener for them. It's not like going into the clinic with the preceptor and running on it. And yes, we do. Typically, if we're doing a puppy, we just do the ABR, sure. because that's what's, what's required. If we have an older dog, we usually run a DPOAE, a distortion Auto product. Auto emissions, distortion emission. product, yep. Mm -hmm. yep. The bear test. Uh, and then sometimes we'll even run wideband emittance. And then presumably maybe for some of those really intelligent dogs like mine, who's a sheep who we could train him to raise his paw when he heard a sound <laughs> coming through. No. Uh, so, so these are all objective measures. The closest parallel for those audiologists who might be listening is probably for those who are specialized in pediatric audiologists because you're not getting the responses back. There probably are some nonverbals you can pick up from, as you mentioned, um, for your dog that you had that, that you could tell they're attending to something. But, yes. but a lot of that, I presume, is going into 
the training and certification for Fetch Lab. And for those, again, who want either audiologists or pet owners who want more information on exactly what Fetch Lab is, F-E-T-C-H-L-A-B, lab, presumably they can go to your, your website and find more information if they're interested, like I am, in uh, uh, pursuing this certification so that uh, I can continue to pursue my passion as an animal lover in addition to the audiology space. But, uh, I mean, it's just fascinating. And um, I, I could go on all day about this topic, I, but I see we're running out of time. Uh, and the time has flown by. But can you give me a couple tips for pet owners who might be listening um, for people who might be concerned that their dog may have a hearing loss, things to, to attend to, things they might notice from your experience in those many people who are contacting you thinking that their dog has a hearing loss and other things that they could do in lieu of a hearing aid, which, as you said, there are opportunities but challenges for fitting dogs with hearing aids. Any, any tips for pet owners who suspect that their dog and their hearing isn't as acute as it once was? Sure. Um, I think that there are some symptomatic things that, that the average pet owner uh, can see, but we usually don't see it because we're not, we're not attending to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a dog starts to lose its hearing, of course, there'll be, there'll be times when you call the dog and, may, and it doesn't hear you, it doesn't come. If the, if the, as, the, as the hearing gets worse, you know, they'll fall asleep and you, they'll not, not even realize you're there. We see some typical behaviors. When a dog, a pet owner dog starts to lose and is losing its hearing, one of the things that the dogs will do is if they're with the family, they will lay across a doorway. And they do that because they need to know where their people Mm. are or somebody's leaving the room. That's one of the symptoms that they'll start to do that is kind of they're, they're trying to accommodate what's going on. But being observant to, uh, to dog behavior uh, not attending what people think as selective deafness is, is a, is a big thing. Uh, and, and, and symptoms like that laying where, where they can, or laying next to where they're touching you to be so that they know when you're moving and, and going someplace. Uh, what I tell to guard against is people and, it, and in the veterinary community, this was done for a long time, uh, is, you know, people will jangle keys or something mm-hmm. like that to see if the dog can hear. And so there are two things about that. Obviously, if you do it and in, in you're in the same room as the dog, you know, if the dog can see you, then all bets are off. There's no, it's not right. a test. Um, even if you, if the dog couldn't see you, dogs are tend, tend to be very, very uh, acutely aware of any kind of vibration. So mm-hmm. I have people that, you know, that have come to test and we tell them the dog can hear. And then, you know, a day later, they'll email me and say, well, we were watching TV and I sneezed or I coughed and my dog, you know, responded to it. Well, of course he did, but he's not responding to hearing. He's responding to the vibration that he can feel by that. So that's not a good test. Um, And as and as most audiologists know, um, uh, electrophysiological testing, ABR, is not a true test of hearing. Right. You were bringing the thing up about the dog raising its paw. Well, you know, when we test exotic animals at zoos like polar bears and elephants and stuff, we do behavioral testing. Wow. <laughs> but it's usually done like with the elephant. Uh, if the elephant stands and undergoes the test, uh, if he can hear something, he indicates it either by a paddle or something like that and gets a reward for that. 
Now it takes an inordinate amount of time to go through all the frequencies and everything with, with rewards, but typically over the years, Hefner and Hefner have done this uh, as behavioral testing for a myriad of animals. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the first guy to put hearing aids on was uh, uh, on a dog and he gave it up was uh, a fellow that was a professor at Auburn University way back in the 80s. Uh, but I think that what happened is, well, he retired, but also I think he found that um, at that time there wasn't a big call for it. And it's not easy to do. You know, no, I would not want to be on the other end of working with a polar bear and accusing it of faking a hearing loss. <laughs> uh, I, I do not want to be on the other side of that, but I, don't I, have, to, time, I have but... to come in for a visit and see some of this if, uh, yes, if oh, I have absolutely. that opportunity. I, I would tell you this, I don't want to take up a lot of time, but this is a cute, quick story. Um, when I was head trainer at Mystic Aquarium, at night, we would take an animal offline, one of the dolphins, and we would work with them. We were doing some Navy work. And so um, we also, so we, we we're going to do a behavioral test. And the behavioral test was we have underwater speakers. And so it's connected to a computer. And so we tell, we put eye cups on the animal, we send it down, and then somebody presses the button and a tone goes out, a hydrophone. And if the animal hears it, she comes up and depresses a paddle. Well, marine mammals are, and specifically dolphins, are very, very perceptive. So here's what happened. The first night we did it, it worked out really well. We did probably five or six trials, everything worked well. But on the second night when we came back, the animal had our number. And what would happen is I'd put the eye cups on the animal and she would automatically leave and go down and not even listen, come back up and depress the paddle. Why? Because I'm gonna get a free fish. Right. You know? So so it's like, now you have to worry about, you know, behavioral bias in the whole thing and everything like that. We were even testing um, uh, the dolphin's ability to, um, with the eye cups on, to go 90 meters away in the pool and, uh, and detect a, a six inch polypropylene ring and get it and bring it back. And when we started to do that, it was working fine. We, we even put a hydrophone on her melon so we could hear the incoming and outgoing pulses mm -hmm. what for her echolocating. Mm -hmm. So it worked well for a while. And then all of a sudden one night I sent her down and she went right out to the object and there was nothing coming out of the hydrophone. She was not signaling, she was not echolocating. Well, it turns out that the answer to that was we had been putting the, that, that ring target in the same place every time. After three weeks of doing that, she knew where the target was. She didn't mm. have to echolocate, she'd just go and get it. So, so me saying, oh, well, I'm Mr. Human and, you know, and I, got, I got a handle on this. Tell my technician, okay, when I put the eye cups on her, I want you to walk around and put the object, the, the ring in a different part in the pool. And so lo and behold, we do that. I put the, I put the ear cups on and he goes running around and he puts the, the thing in the water and she goes right out to it with no echolocation signal. Now, it confounded us for months and then we finally figured it out by doing some seismic work. The pool at the main pool at Mystic Aquarium in the theater is built on granite rock, which is what the whole aquarium is built on. Sure. I mean, at night I can put a hydrophone in there and hear all the trucks going down I-95 next to the. So all she did was she counted his footsteps. 
I put That's the eye cups on and she goes down and she listens to him walk across to where he's going to put the thing. It's, it's incredible. I mean, working with yeah, exotic animals, the acoustic sense of animals and dolphins are, is amazing. Right. And, uh, I mean, I, I love my job, but I really love your job. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I, I guess, you know, in wrapping up, uh, wondered if for the audiologists or audiology students who are listening to you in this, with this incredible career you've had, do you have any key learnings or life lessons that you uh, could impart and, and for people that might aspire to have uh, a similar uh, career path or goals or any, anything you've learned over the years? Well, I have learned uh, over the years that we don't give enough credit to a lot of sensation and a lot of things that animals know and can do. And if you stop to think about it, most of what we know about radar and sonar has all come from animals just mm -hmm. as For electrophysiological sure. and audiological testing. You know, whether it's a chinchilla or whether it's a bottlenose dolphin, it doesn't make any difference. And so what I've learned to do is to sit back and listen and watch. What can the animal teach me? Mm -hmm. And uh, and I'm finding out that, you know what, I'm not as a human, I, I'm not all, I'm not as smart as sometimes as I think I am. Uh, and and so uh, I, I challenge, uh, you know, anybody that is looking for the certificate to say. You are in, in an audiological profession, uh, you know, doing a great service for mankind and 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 we certainly need this and, and your technology and everything has come a long way. Help advance the world with animals. If you have animals that are in zoological organizations under professional care, um, how, do you make, how do you make the exhibits? How do you make it safe for them? Moreover, the work that we're doing right now with elephants in South Africa, a lot of that work has to do with protecting those elephants from poachers and from other, and protecting the people from elephants raiding their crops because people are living longer and so they're farming. Um, you know, we can do an awful lot for the world uh, to, to that end. Ah, I couldn't agree more. And uh, thank you so much for being with us here today. I'd like to close by, uh, uh, we've started a tradition of saying, you know, uh, asking each person maybe um, who your, what's your favorite song or your favorite sound? Uh, and maybe in your case, a, a canine or animal-based song or sound uh, that is a, a favorite of yours from over the years, given the, the importance of hearing. Any, anything you can immediately think of? Yeah, I think one of the things that I have always liked listening to uh, that comes back to me is you, you haven't lived until you've heard a humpback whale on a submarine sonar. Oof. When that whale sings and it comes through, it's like nothing you've ever experienced. I and now I'm going to go out and look on YouTube and see if I can find one. I've heard them uh, in uh, on a kayak, but not on a sonar sound. And so uh, I'm going to go out on a search for that. And so, if if you want to do that, go to a go to a website called um, Dosit D O S I T E, which is Discovery of Sound in the Sea. Okay. And my record, my recordings from sonar are on there for various marine mammals. All right, I'm going to take you up on full. that. 
I'm going to take you up on that. Well, Dr. Pete Shifley, it's been an absolute pleasure to, to uh, have you uh, chat with us today about your experience. And, and I know our listeners are going to enjoy this podcast or this dog cast if there are any canines out there. Thanks for inviting me, David. And I look forward to talking with you much more. And to our listeners, thank you for listening to this episode of Starkey Soundbites. You can learn more about Dr. Shifley's work by Googling Fetch Lab online. That again is F-E-T-C-H-L-A-B. If you enjoyed this conversation, please rate and review Starkey Soundbites on your preferred podcast platform. You can also hit subscribe to be sure you don't miss a single episode. We'll see and hear you next time.